Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Um, while I have you here, and I'm using this wonderful medium in my PowerPoint skills, I'd like to mention a little gift that I received. Um, this is the book that I received recently from a friend here at Cornerstone, a member. Uh, it says, that's easy for you to say, your quick guide to pronouncing Bible names. Now, you've heard of a backhanded compliment? I think this is like a backhanded gift. Um, so, despite them, I am going to show you today maybe a, a something that we, we know, usually we call that city AI by that pronunciation. I'm going to zoom in here a little bit. Uh, the, per, the correct pronunciation, as you'll see, is I. So, instead of saying AI like it's artificial intelligence, we can now call it I. So, that's the way we use these good gifts that we've been given and learn from them. Um, so, there it is. Uh, so I, I realized there's something I kind of put myself at danger here that I've shown that now because I feel like I might get a book next week that has to deal with like fashion or something else about using good sermon illustrations to start things off. So uh, be careful what you give. Um, let me read a few verses for us before we start. And I want you to just listen and not turn there. I just want you to listen for a moment. These are verses that are going to call us to examine ourselves. They're going to call us to question whether or not we are the real thing. So I want you to listen. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? 2 Peter 1, 10 through 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lastly, probably the, the scariest New Testament passage that we know of, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I bring some of these passages up because we're going into a place today where we're going to ask some of these questions of ourselves as we watch Achan do what he does. And we're going to see that this is not a pleasant question to ask. Uh, I want you to know up front, <laughs> this is going to sound strange, but I love you. I did not want to do this passage. It felt very heavy and harsh, and people are going to walk out somber. But we are committed to the expository preaching of the word, and this is exactly what he gave to us. So I have all confidence that this is exactly what God wants for us right now. So I want to remind you, and I ask that you pray for me, that I'd speak the truth in love, but the truth nonetheless, because there's nothing more loving than telling the truth of the gospel. So this is what we're going to do. We're not going to start by reading the whole chapter here in, verse, in chapter 7, it's too good. <laughs> like it's too well written for us to just get over it and then start talk about it later. So instead we're going to walk the whole passage together. This is the power that stories have for us. 
is not only that we, you know, we tell them for little children, but we tell them for one another so that we can both feel it and walk it together, but then also so we can remember and so that we can tell one another and so we realize what it's like and it's very much a good tool for us. So let me first reduce the story to one proposition, this phrase. I'm going to help us understand. It's going to be boring. You're not probably going to remember it from this. But as we get to the end, as we walk through the story, I think you're going to realize that this is exactly what this is about. So here's it is. The Lord shows through Achan's sin, through Israel's defeat, and the punishment of Achan's sin, that Israel's number one concern is covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. Let me say it again. I want you to listen. The Lord shows through Achan's sin, Israel's defeat, and the punishment of Achan's sin, it's all of chapter 7, that Israel's number one concern is covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. Before we begin, I'd like for you to join me for a moment, stop and pray. I mean, we pray throughout the, you know, the service. This is important for us, though, as we realize what we're doing is asking God's grace in our own hearts, that he would give us ears to hear, that he would give us willing hearts to obey, and that we would be able to see as he does with the eyes of faith that see him as true Lord. So let me take this a minute and pray for us together. Lord, we ask for your great grace. We ask that you would work in our hearts to receive with gladness what you've given to us. We thank you for giving us your divine revelation that tells us of who you are and reminds us of what as your people we are to do. God, may we glory in the cross of Jesus Christ today, knowing all the backstory and understanding all that we've been saved from. God, you teach us. Give us hearts of faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Joshua 7. It's been two full weeks since we've been back in Joshua 6. The last two weeks we did something a little bit different. Last week we did gleanings from the conference, and the week before that we did that excursus on how a just and righteous God can kill all these people in Canaan. So three weeks ago, we were in chapter 6. Let me give you a little sum up of what chapter 6 was all about. In chapter 6, we learned that Joshua didn't exactly fight the battle of Jericho. Uh, you could say that, but really it was more like Yahweh, the divine warrior, gave the city of Jericho into the hands of the people to destroy them for the sake of Yahweh. We learned that the Canaanites had become those that were devoted to God for destruction due to their God-hating history and their pursuit of all other types of wicked idolatry. They were primed for destruction. We learned that very clearly. They were ready. And as Israel ceremonially obeyed God and walked around in silence, taking before them the Ark of the Covenant, being quiet, this whole ceremony built up, we watch as God gives this city over to 100% destruction, as is offered to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. So we leave chapter 6 in a very sober but high point. What I mean by that is the people have obeyed. They have shown obedience to God. They have done exactly as he said. That does not mean that they've never sinned in these, all these little sins. And there's no bigger little sin. What I mean by that, you'll, you'll understand in a moment. I'm not saying that they were perfect. I am saying that they faithfully followed Yahweh and all that he said. And into the covenant that he called them to, they obeyed. And they followed. And so we see them on a high note here, obeying and God coming through on his promises. So let's pick up, look at your Bible in chapter 7. Let's start in verse 2. Here we are, moving on from Jericho, a city in which God's power was put on display. God proved himself to be true at Jericho. What he promised would happen did happen as they followed in obedience. And here we find Joshua making the next step in the conquest. Verse 2, 
Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. Notice here then already, Joshua is actually obeying. He's doing what he's supposed to do. From chapter one, we know this. Go in and take this land, take possession of it. He's doing what he's supposed to. He sends the spies into the city as he did all the way back in chapter two, if you remember that. He did the same thing in Jericho. Sent the spies in for them to look at the land and see what was going on. In chapter two, though, they come back and they give this as their report. They say to to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. But now when we get to chapter seven, the report is a little different. Verse three, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole people of a people toil up there for they are few. Can anyone hear uh, almost a tone of self-reliance or maybe not seriousness about this task? Anyone here like the spies doing more than just reporting and rather what they're actually answering with is like, hmm, here's some tactic, tactics that you ought to use. Like not letting Joshua be the leader, but they're saying, no, this is what you should do right here. We're telling you, you don't need to send them. Just send two or 3,000 men. We'll take care of this thing. They're a little nothing of a town. You don't have to worry about them. Almost as though this little outpost really didn't matter. And Joshua ought not worry himself with battling them seriously because they were so small. Joshua is persuaded. He's fine with it. He trusts his men. And they get their 3,000 men and they attack the city. Look at verse 4. So about 3,000 men went up from there, uh, there from the people. And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. In a turn, right at the beginning of this chapter that we are not expecting, instead of seeing the decimation of another city by God's promises coming true, instead we see these people, these 3,000 warriors, turn their backs and run away and flee this town. They turn tail and flee. Not only that, 36 of their fighting force are killed. This is significant since they've just taken a huge city, Jericho, without any loss of life. And here they are at this little outpost and they've lost 36. And it's not that they lost 36 in battle and they conquered the city. They lost 36 and ran away and ran back literally with their tails between their legs. It's not just like a little thing. It's a big deal, this chaotic running away that something terribly wrong has happened as they are overwhelmed by this little enemy. They could not even put up a proper fight and has left the Israelite fighting force with their backs turned away from their enemies. Not at all the position that seems to be, have formed in Joshua 1, what was supposed to happen. So much so then that our narrator describes the people of Israel's condition as one that their hearts has melted and become as water. He uses, if you didn't notice that, the exact same language that characterized the Canaanites, that fear had come over them, so much so that their hearts melted within them. Up to this point, the Canaanites are characterized by fear, so that their their hearts are melted. But now, you have Israelites beginning to look like Canaanites, as their hearts have melted with fear. How in the world are they supposed to respond to this? They know all God's promises. They've been obeying and obeying and obeying. And all of a sudden, instead of doing what they thought, or even maybe just a little bit of, you know, some negative pressure, 
they lose completely and have to run away. What is Joshua and the men supposed to think about this? God is supposed to be with them. They're supposed to be successful and prosper. He's supposed to be with them. He cries out then, in these next verses, in a lament. Take a look at verse six. Then Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Where does Joshua turn? Where does our man turn, this guy who's leading this nation of Israel? To the presence of God. What do we know about the ark? It constantly is a manifestation of the presence of God. And he goes back to it to say, God, what is going on? Joshua turns to his covenant-keeping God to mourn, to grieve, and eventually he will cry out and talk to God. Look at verse 7. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when all Israel turn their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? I love this little passage. What Joshua is doing is pouring out his grief in honest faith. He is asking, why? What is happening? This is not my expectation. I seem to know, I think, what you're supposed to do, and that's not what's going on here. Joshua is pouring out his grief, his questions to God, his struggle, his broken expectations. He thinks he knows what's going to happen, but it's not at all what happens. In fact, the exact opposite seems to happen. He is dumbfounded before God until he finally opens his mouth and asks him, God, I thought we were supposed to be successful if we obeyed you. We have obeyed and you've given us wild success in Jericho. I mean, what's, what's the deal here? Now we're at this little outpost that we should be easily being able to take and we're running away from them and we've lost 36 soldiers. We look like inept chicken livers running away, unable to do battle against the smallest of enemies. How can this be so? What in the world? Tonight, Jordan is actually going to teach in course seminar on lament. You should be here. It is going to be excellent equipping for your good to make you more like Jesus Christ. It's a good opportunity, so there's the shameless plug. But this is an opportunity for us to hear the truth of what we mean when we talk about lament. This is not a grumbling. This is not complaining and casting out thoughts about the image of God or God himself as though that we can somehow degrade him through this talk. Instead, Joshua knows what's going on. Joshua is using a lament to speak to God. In faith, get that, in faith, he is coming to God confused and hurt, knowing that God is still good and that he is still true. He knows that God doesn't break his promises, but all the stuff going on around him seems that he's not true. Are we not very similar in our situations where we have stuff that happens to us and we say, why? What in the world? Aren't you going to take care of your children? Don't you say that you're going to give us bread? Won't you supply every one of our needs? How can it be, God, that this is what's going on? How often we find ourselves in the same place with doubts, controversies in our own hearts. Brothers and sisters, can I just remind you of one thing? Hope in God. That's not just empty talk. Remember, calling to him as Joshua does in faith is the right thing. Joshua's doing the right thing. 
He does not wish to die. He does not grumble against God. He's not complain or grumble like the children of Israel did. He simply hurts and cries out to God in his need. Of all people, we, of all people, should understand how to properly grieve. For it was our Lord who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If anyone knows our griefs, if anyone has also borne our sorrows and understands it, the human condition is our Lord Jesus. And so, can I remind you, in the depths of hurting, we should lament, but we also must hope in our God. We cannot lose our faith in him, not in general, in him. Our faith rests on him and him alone, on his character that does not change, the one who does mighty and wondrous acts in the face of suffering that you're going through. And I don't know what it is. I know some of you, and man, it's hard. But I can tell you this, you must, you must, brother and sister, you must hope in God. He will not fail. He will always be true. Joshua grieves and laments before God, calling him to be true to himself. And don't miss this, at the end, he calls him here for the sake of his great name. Instead of saying, woe is me, having the pity party, I wish I was dead, at the end he says, what will you do for your great name? He's a believer. He knows and trusts this God and loves him. He isn't complaining, he's trusting. For a moment then, Forget the, I could spend the whole time on that. But for a moment, step back after this and let's ask the question that Joshua's asking. Why did they fail? Why did these 36 men die? It doesn't seem to make sense to us. When we read two through five, all right, you may be able to quickly actually highlight some things and say, oh, I think these are the reasons. Take a look. I'll give you, I'll give you three that seem somewhat apparent. We don't see them, first of all, asking God. They didn't pray about this or ask for his guidance. They moved forward. Uh, almost as though they should have prayed first. Number two, we see that they, they seem to have moved forward in self-reliance or pride, like maybe like, don't worry, we got this, Joshua, it's gonna be okay. Possible pride situation. Number three, Joshua listened to the spies for strategy instead of taking leadership for himself. These are all possibilities. They all could be contributing factor, factors to the defeat, no question. All these things could be mistakes that they had made. But the problem is that none of these three things are identified as problems in the text. God never comes back to them to tell them that these are the problems with them. So, what is the problem? Why the failure? Why were these guys done? This has happened to these 36 men killed. Some of you noticed that we started on verse 2. We're going to go back and read verse 1. What I wanted to do is to start helping us think the way that Joshua thought. He doesn't get to read verse 1. His experience starts at verse 2. Now let us go back to verse 1 and see if we can answer the question, why did these 36 men die? Why did they fail? Let's ask this question. Verse 1, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, and the tr of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. You ask, why did these 3,000 men fail at I? It's very simple. Because the wrath or the anger of the Lord was against them because it was against Israel in the, the committing of this sin by his servant Achan, by this man. It's very tempting for us to jump to the issues that we just said through two through five that, oh, there's the real reason. And we just kind of sit there and preach on I mean, that'll preach. Like, hey, we ought to pray more. Hey, we ought to not be self-confident. Hey, we ought to make sure we listen to our leaders. I could pray. I could preach all of that. But that's not what the text is actually saying to us. 
We have to make sure we read all of it in context and understand. As Joshua does this and laments, the Lord gives him an answer. So we had the, uh, the advantage of verse 1, but now we get Joshua getting an answer from God himself. Look at verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Whoa. He went from lament to get this answer, and it's all clear like that. Oh, I understand. Joshua understands because he comes to him and says, there's a big problem. My anger is burning hot against the, I mean, all of Israel. After the men come back, we see Joshua lament. We have to remember again that he has not read verse 1. All he knows is that the circumstances don't look like they match up with what he knows to be true about God. And thus we even see in his lament and his cry out to God the proper response when you don't understand. And now God, in his grace, let me highlight this, in his grace and mercy explains to him why it went so poorly. The Lord answers Joshua. He reveals to him that Israel has sinned. This is a great mercy. They have transgressed the covenant. They have stolen. They have lied. They have hidden the devoted things. Why was it that the 3,000 men failed to eye? It is God's grace that he didn't destroy all 3,000 of those men. Why? Again, because they had become a thing of destruction because of what Achan did. He took that in. Do you remember in chapter 6? We went through this in verse 18. I'm going to read it for you in a moment. He was talking to the people when they're getting ready to go into Jericho, what they're supposed to do. And he says this, But you... Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. That's what happened. They did exactly what he told them not to do. And now the anger of the Lord burns hot against Israel. Catch that. Not just Achan. They have transgressed the covenant. The people of Israel had become a thing for destruction. And the Lord, because of his great mercy, speaks to Joshua. Because he's gracious, because he's merciful, because he's kind, he does not wish that all men would be destroyed, but rather because he's faithful and steadfast love abounds, he tells them there's sin. You must change this situation or else I will destroy you. You have become a thing of destruction. And I'm telling you this. The Lord continues because, again, he's merciful. Don't miss this. He has every right to destroy all of Israel. Because he's a God of mercy and steadfast love, he will tell Joshua how to remedy the situation. That is God's grace. And even in that, do you not know when we share the good news with others, we must share the bad news first? We must understand that there's a big problem. And without that, we have no need for this Jesus person. But if we understand that God's wrath is against all men who do not trust him, man, that becomes sobering news quick. And because of that, the good news is good. Read verse 13 with me. Take a look. The Lord continues and he says this, get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate, I'm sorry, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. 
In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. It's pretty straightforward. These are very straightforward terms. This is what you're supposed to do. You need to go do this right now. You must prepare. You must consecrate yourselves because I'm about to do something wondrous. Get who's doing this. This is not their cleverness to figure out who did it. It's, it's, it's not a mystery. It is God's continual hand of providence and mercy showing them the sin in their midst. This is a wondrous act, and thus he says, consecrate yourself, because God himself will act on your behalf. He will identify the person who has made themselves and this Israel a devoted thing for destruction. Joshua responds, look at verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And he can answer Joshua, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. And I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Joshua goes ahead with the procedure that God has given to him. They are hidden in the earth here. Achan is unveiled. And Joshua makes this wonderful little statement about confession. This is so helpful. He says, give glory to the Lord and praise him. How? By telling what you've done. Do you realize what's happening here? Like, this, is the, this means that when truth is told, the God of all truth is praised. Confession, when it happens, and not repentance, by the way, confession, when the truth is stated, God gets glory. It is praise to God when we speak the truth. We can even say when two plus two is four and we say that, that brings honor and glory to God because it's truth. But here we see something far more specific and more important. He is going to tell us that what's going on here is the truth and that brings honor and praise and glory to God. Achan then tells us what happened. He did what Eve did. Think about that. He looked. He coveted. He took and he hid. All the same things. Verse 22 says, So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel, get this, and they laid them down before the Lord. All things now have been exposed to God's ever-seeing eyes and before all the children of Israel. The sin of the nation on display before God. Joshua didn't know about it. The elders didn't know about it. The nation didn't know about it. No one knew this. And yet here we are. God knew every single part of what was going on in Achan's heart. God's word would be revealed to be true. So how will the people and Joshua respond? Verse 24. 
And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons, and his daughters, and his oxen, and his donkeys, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had, if you didn't get a whole idea, everything. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? Why did 36 people have to die and now you and your family must die and we must bear the wrath here until this is taken away by God's good hand? Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Joshua and all of Israel take Achan and do with him as God has commanded them. They act against Achan for what and who he truly is. A devoted thing for destruction. What's happening here is not only does Achan get stoned and burned, the narrator, Joshua, is going to help us understand the heart of the issue by helping us see Achan's true identity. Did you see all the things that go along with Achan? It's not just Achan. It's the young and the old, all the livestock, all the tents, all that he had burned, totally destroyed. Does the fate of Achan seem to mirror the fate of anyone else that we've seen in the book of Joshua? How about chapter six, all of Jericho? He has proven himself to not just be an Israelite, the contrary. He has proven that he is a Canaanite. By his actions, he's revealed what's actually going on in his heart. Joshua 6.21 says, Then they devoted all the city to the destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, the edge of the sword. Then verse 24, they burned the city with fire. This is the same thing that's happening to Achan and his family. Achan has become and shown himself to be truly not of Israel but rather has proven to be one of Canaan. Joshua's making very clear for us to understand that. The people finish this episode by raising up a great heap of stones over top of him, over Achan's body, and it's meant, just like the other things we've seen this before in Joshua, to draw our attention as we walk by and see this memorial, we're to ask, what is that huge heap of stones? And the parents are to say to their children, this is where this happened with Achan remembering the trouble that was brought on Israel, remembering the seriousness with which we must obey the law, covenant faithfulness. It's a horrific testament to the fact that covenant unfaithfulness brings trouble to God's people. A place that is aptly named the Valley of Achor. Achor means the place of trouble. It also sounds like Achan if you didn't see that. And so the final editorial comment closes this narrative by telling us the Lord turn from his burning anger. Praise God, or else we would have a different end of the story. But God turned from his burning anger. In verse one, we started with the fact that the anger of the Lord burned against the people because of their broken faith in the covenant. And now as the people obey every word that God has told them to do, as they have been strong and courageous to be careful to do every word the Lord gives them, they see the burning anger of God turned away, abated, turned away from them as Israel. So, what are we supposed to do with this passage? Now, if you've heard this preached before, uh, that's great. I hope so. Um, I've heard 
some, several different lessons along the way that we learn. And it's very easy for us to jump to some of these because they seem like, like, like low-hanging fruit, real simple stuff. Um, let me list a few things that we're tempted to preach from this text. Number one, overconfidence and the lack of prayer can lead to defeat. That's, that's true. Maybe we could preach that from this text. Or we must consecrate ourselves and take away the devoted things from among us. Like that's what we're supposed to be doing, cornerstone. Or number three, we must obey all of God's methods perfectly. Or, or there are terrible consequences for sin. Think about Achan's whole family being blotted out. Or number five, we, we must be very careful not to commit the same sins that Achan did. Stealing, coveting, hiding. We don't want to do that. Or else we might be like, like him and get, this, get what comes to us. Several of these things are true. They really are. We're going to see many of these things throughout scriptures. And we can preach them from other places. But in this story, that's not the point. There's a couple of other things that we learned that we got to get as foundational. How about the fact that un, covenant unfaithfulness will result in God's anger? And the only way to abate the anger of God is to do exactly how he tells us to do. In other words, follow all the way back to Joshua 1. Second thing, how about this? Israel cannot have the presence of God with them when they have taken into their presence devoted things. Those things are supposed to be God's. We're going to focus a little more actually in two weeks on this idea. Will God's presence come back to his people and give them prosperity and success like he said he would? Will that actually happen? That's going to happen in chapter 8. Or how about this? One person's sin, seemingly their unbelief and non-love, can be counted as staining the whole group. That's a significant truth we need to wrestle with. None of us like that. How's that possible? There are many true principles that we can and should draw from some of these things. But our job here is to make sure we don't miss the biggest part here. Joshua 7 is not telling us new information. It's not. What we are learning here is that what God said to us, he is deadly serious about. He is showing us very simply that God is serious about what he's already told Israel back in chapter 1. The consistent drumbeat throughout the whole book of Joshua thus far is this. If Israel wants to survive, if they want to succeed and thrive, if they want to prosper and have success and receive every promise that Abraham received from God, if they want complete and utter joy and happiness, then they're not to be concerned with military tactics or resource gathering or people building or looking the part of Israelites or, get this, not even that they have to be strong and courageous warriors. That is not their number one concern. Their number one concern is that they must be faithful to the covenant to Yahweh. That's what we said at the beginning, the proposition was. This is it. Their number one concern is covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. And what we're learning here is that Achan took that likely, lightly, and he did not care. It wasn't important to him, and it caused him to act this way. The story of Achan shows us that God is dead serious about covenant faithfulness, and it is not all about the individual. Remember in verse 1, like I said, he identifies the whole nation as breaking faith. This is not only Achan. This is a national problem, a group of God problem. What are they supposed to do here? If Israel will not be true to Yahweh, he will remove her. He will take his presence away. He will destroy her like he does the Canaanites. That's an interesting way of saying it, like, that, like he will destroy them like they're the Canaanites. Like This is about identity. Why would I talk about identity at this point? Consider Achan in this story for a moment. 
he has become a devoted thing for destruction, right? Why? I want us to think deeply about this. Why was Achan a destroyed? Look, obviously, 618, he took it, so he's a, he's a destroyed thing. But why were those things anything that mattered here? Why, why, why did he become that? Or maybe a bigger question. Why were the people of Canaan, Jericho, why were they devoted for destruction? Well, it's pretty simple. If you remember this, they are a people of destruction because they disobey God. They don't care about what he says. They don't trust him. They don't love him. They worship other gods before him. They take all of God's commands and say, we don't care about that. Achan is the exact same. What he does is not love God. He doesn't trust God. He is an unbelieving rebel in their midst. He is not concerned with covenant faithfulness to Yahweh at all. Remember, he stood there as the command in 618 is given. He stood there with all the rest of his covenant-keeping brothers and heard the command, if you take any of this stuff, you will become a thing for destruction and you will bring trouble on Israel. Can you imagine you and I sitting there hearing that? I'm not going to touch anything. Destroy it. Leave it alone. I'm not touching anything. But somehow Achan doesn't take it seriously. And so instead, he takes these things. Not because Joshua wasn't a persuasive speaker. Like that's somehow like the reason. It was like, oh, if Joshua had won't No, no. Remember that all of Israel exalted him, understood him. All of the land understood who Joshua was. He was a bona fide word from the Lord prophet in that way. And yet, the problem for Achan is, not that he doesn't believe Joshua, it's that he doesn't believe God. And what's happening here is we are seeing this lie, this theft, this hiding, this covetousness, this idolatry, it's all coming out of one main problem. He's not his one and only Lord. Not at all. Nay, Achan doesn't believe. Achan doesn't love. It's not just some small to the side sin. He holds it and holds it and holds it. Think about like going through all those different people groups and Achan's just waiting like maybe they'll get somebody else. Like he had all these opportunities to step up and show who he was. But instead he waits and hides and hides and hides. It's because he's unbelieving. He doesn't trust this God or love him. And And think about his identity too. What tribe is he from? It's not like Nephtali or something we don't talk about very often. It is Judah. He is the Jew of Jews in one sense. There's no mistaking his pedigree. He is a Jew. And yet, he of all people now is seen and revealed to be a Canaanite. Man, what do we learn here? Achan's not real Israel. He is the opposite of our great sister, Rahab. What do we learn back in chapter 2? In the midst of an unbelieving city, Jericho, rampant with idolatry and all kinds of wickedness, we see her faith and we see that it is accepted before the Lord and her obedience to trust him and him alone. And she is now seen in the line of Jesus. And we come over here and see a Jew of Jews from from the tribe of Judah even. And what does he prove to be? A Canaanite. In their midst, there is one who does not know God, who does not care, who does not love him with his heart, soul, and mind. He does not trust him with everything. Guys, we have to consider this very seriously. Do you trust God explicitly? Is he actually your one and only God, your Lord? Do you love him with your whole heart, soul, and mind? Is he the desire of your heart? I'm asking this. Are you 
a Christian. This is heavy, and it is important that we take it seriously because we understand that there are dire consequences for not being one who is of Yahweh. Maybe some of you think, I, I play a part. You know, I'm comfortable with being with this group of people. I like the things that are going on here. Pretty accepted. I'm good with that. Being part of this corporate physical gathering does not qualify you as a Christian. It is at your heart. Look at Achan. Being part of it. He had the pedigree to everything. He had all the DNA. That's not what mattered. And so I ask us the question, what's actually going on in your heart? Do you love Christ more than anything else this world has to offer? Are you serious about knowing this God? It comes back to like the most, I'm not going to tell you anything else. <laughs> this is the most basic stuff. Do you love God with your heart, soul, and mind? Because that's what we're trying to get to here. And he's showing that Achan did not. And thus we see him to be one who is unbelieving. Friend, there's bad news if you act like Achan. God is just and he will destroy all that do not believe and love him. But there's good news. There's this wonderful news. You are, do you have any, any idea that you sit under the preaching of the word that you can hear me say right now, there is good news. There is a way out of this. And it's not through me doing anything or you doing anything. It's the love of Jesus Christ who has shed his blood on the cross. So if you would trust him and know him alone and depend completely on him as the Lord of your life, you can be saved. This is the good news. This is for us to glory in. So I ask of you, if you do not know this Jesus, repent, friend. Do not stay in your sin, for he will destroy you. But if you will turn to him and trust him as the only Lord and Savior, as the true king of the world, you will know salvation and you will know him. Brothers and sisters, I will remind you, don't let this thing slide off of you because you think you're, you're fine. We need to very closely understand this story and realize what it looks like for our body. And you should ask the question for yourself. What is it? What is it that makes me a Christian? Is it be being next to everyone else or doing a bunch of good stuff or having grown up in a Christian home? Children in here? You need to think of that seriously. You must know and love Jesus alone. Your parents cannot save you. They will not be able to. At this point, I want you to realize that this is about you knowing and loving and trusting God with your whole heart. So I'll say this, for brothers and sisters, our God is gracious, kind, and merciful, but we must, as Peter told us, be diligent to confirm our calling and election with obedience and love for our Savior. It is what he calls us to. And joyously we respond, knowing that he has saved us from destruction, from that which we deserve. Our number one concern is the same. Covenant faithfulness to Yahweh, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We stand in a different place, but the, the, the message is the same. This is what he is concerned about. Aching causes us to properly examine ourselves in light of what true covenant faithfulness is. May we then, by God's mercy and grace, enjoy this covenant-keeping God and prove him to be true by love and trust and obedience. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you work faith in my own heart we need you. We need you to work. We ask for your spirit to powerfully change us to be more like the image of your son, Jesus. 
we've recognized, God, it's so easy to look the part. I can't tell. The elders can't tell. We don't know what's going on in people's hearts. God, you know. So I pray that you would take your people and have them listen today, and it would bother them if they do not know you. It would bother them if they do not trust you fully. It would bother them if they are a, an Achan, that they would turn from that sin and they would trust you and you alone. How sweet it would be to see this happen in our midst. God, we will give all praise and glory and honor to you. We do not want to be only characterized by confession, but also repentance. Will you help us to turn from sin and love you supremely? All glory be to Christ alone in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.